to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. Many cancer patients experience mental slowness and even loss of memory during chemotherapy treatments, a phenomenon some call chemo brain. Until recently, little was known about how and why patients have these neurological side effects during treatment. This week, today, we're talking about uh, ongoing research on chemo brain and ways that cancer patients can try to cope. We have three guests with us in the studio. Brenna McDonald is with us. She's a pediatric neuropsychologist with the Center for Neuroimaging at the IU School of Medicine. Julia Livingston is here. Julia is a Bloomington resident. She's a, uh, an artist, a ceramicist in town, and she has just completed chemotherapy treatments this summer and has suffered from chemo brain. And also Janice Ross is here. She's a nurse navigator with the Alcott Center for Cancer Education the IU, uh, with IU Health Bloomington. If you want to call us uh, to talk with us on the program, please phone 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So now that we have all that out of the way, welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So uh, chemo brain is sort of a new phenomenon. And uh, Brenna, can you sort of talk about what, what it is and why we're, why we're talking about it now? I saw lots of stories in December about this uh, yeah, there were a couple of, of big research meetings in December where I think that, that press came from. It's interesting. It's not really a new phenomenon so much as a phenomenon that's getting increased recognition um, and increased awareness, I think, as, as with everything else. Our availability of, of media and being able to learn more information has made this seem like a new phenomenon. But in, in fact, um, this is an area that folks have been researching for about 30 years now in terms of looking at symptoms reported by patients after having chemotherapy. And, and some of the early research, a lot of the research on this has been done in breast cancer, particularly because it's such a big cancer population um, with, with patients who are now doing so well in terms of a survivorship that these kinds of symptoms are, are getting more closely looked at because there are so many patients dealing with them after having survived their cancer. And so um, early on, as I said, about, about 30 years ago now, um, initially, these kinds of, of complaints, as, as you described, fe patients feeling like their thinking isn't uh, quite what it was before their cancer and its treatment, that they're maybe slower to process information or have trouble with their memory. Those kinds of complaints initially got chalked up to um, emotional factors, so things like uh, depression or fatigue. And it, it took a while for um, medicine to realize that these perhaps were due to something about the cancer or its treatment and, and not something purely psychological. And that's research that um, a number of groups, ours included, have, have spent decades now really looking into. And what we found have been that there are, in fact, um, changes that we can document in the brain that we see clearly related both to cancer and to cancer treatments, particularly uh, whole brain radiation for patients who, who need that, or chemotherapy, that clearly aren't due just to fatigue or just to mood factors or personality factors or things like that. These are things going on in the brain that we can detect, that we can look at the change over time after treatment. Um, so I think what's what's newer is the fact that we really understand that this is a, a real quote-unquote issue and, and not just something that we need to treat from a mental health standpoint. Mm -hmm. Now, Julia, you uh, you suffer this firsthand, <laughs> yes. right? And you were not a... a Diagnosed with breast cancer, you had a different kind of cancer. Endometrial right? cancer. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And you were diagnosed when? In March. In March and started chemotherapy? In April, and um, I had six rounds of chemotherapy and five weeks of um, radiation. Mm -hmm. And that ended August 14th. Mm -hmm. And so were you aware that this was one of the side effects that you might uh, come across? You know, nothing um, was said to me um, I re by any of the healthcare professionals that I worked with, but I have a, um, a support group of women with gynecological cancers, and um, it, was, it was brought up in the group. And so, as I was, um, it was it was good to have that because then I began to be able to make sense of some of my symptoms because it's easy to kind of be in the swimming pool of whatever you're experiencing. And, right. So um, it was very good to have the words to describe it. Right. And, and what were the symptoms? How were you feeling? Well, um, 
I, I wrote some of my symptoms down because it's hard to remember. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was afraid I would forget. But um, one thing is I wrote down, I don't do numbers. I do not entertain solving anything resembling a math story problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. so I don't do that. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> I often walk into a room and go, why am I here? And I was doing that before. I'm 62, so I was doing it a little bit. But, but um, it's... So I look for evidence around of why I might have been there or what I have in my hand. Mm-hmm. So some of that. Now, some of our listeners will know your work, your pottery mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, did this have any effect on your ability to do your work? Yes, in that I didn't feel like, and this was difficult for me, I didn't feel like making anything new happen anymore. So I've always been a pretty creative person in many ways. and. So I suddenly had no sense that I could put together and make something new happen. But I am archiving my old work, so I can do that now, and I anticipate. I'm, my symptoms are, are really reducing over time in the last four and a half months, so I'm anticipating and find myself being more creative now. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about the project that you did during your, your time, I guess during the chemotherapy treatments. Right. Well, no, this was actually right before, right um, for the last two and a half years, I did a project called 100 right. Cups. Uh-huh. And I finished my last five after my diagnosis and before okay. my surgery. I see. So the last five reflect my dealing with the shock of a diagnosis mm-hmm. of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't do any of that during chemo. I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so if you want to talk to us about this topic, I want to give our numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and wfiu.org slash noon edition is the website. Um, uh, Janice, so as a nurse navigator, first of all, tell us what that is. Nurse navigation has been around for about 40 years now. It started out in New York with Harold Freeman at the Ralph Lauren Cancer Center. It started out by trying to help identify barriers to care for people with cancer and also trying to make sure that there was access to care. We've been using navigation at the Alcott Center since the very beginning before we knew what navigation actually was, before we knew to call it navigation. When patients make contact with us, we make sure and answer any questions they might have about their cancer. And then we do follow-up phone calls. We also visit them in the hospital. We sometimes accompany them to doctor office visits to make sure that they're understanding what they're being told because sometimes it feels like medicine has its own language. So we're there to help translate some of that information. And we are a service that walks a patient through the experience of having cancer. So it's different with everyone how long we navigate patients. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just a few visits. We have some people that we've been navigating for years, Mm -hmm. just checking in with them, making sure that they are going to the appointments that are scheduled and helping them out with any of the side effects, any of the issues that they're having related to cancer. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a great many side effects, but chemo brain is one that, that, again, is fairly... um, at least it's been in the news a lot lately. Is that something you've worked with for quite a long time, or is this something you're starting to work with more? Like Brenna said, we've seen this from the very beginning. I've been a cancer nurse for 32 years, and we had patients from the early days reporting having difficulty remembering details, having forgetfulness, having difficulty remembering a specific name, or difficulty with multitasking. So this is not uncommon, but it's just that we're talking about it more and we're trying to understand it. So the research is trying to help us understand why it's happening and how we can help people. Mm -hmm. Do we know if it happens with all types of chemotherapy? We don't know that specifically, partly because um, there are some limitations in how we can do our research. So for example, as I was mentioning, some of the biggest populations that have been studied are breast cancer patients. And even in breast cancer, there are a number of different tre- treatment regimens. It's hard to get enough patients to be able to look at a particular medication or a particular treatment regimen to understand uh, which 
which treatment might be more or less of a concern. There, that's certainly a direction the field is moving in terms of trying to combine data sets from different centers so that we have enough people where we could break subjects into to groups by treatment and try and understand that better. But there have been studies in different populations. So for example, adults with breast cancer um, or children who've been treated for leukemia where we do see similar patterns of cognitive effects post-treatment, suggesting that it's certainly not one particular chemotherapy drug, uh, but likely has to do with, with the mechanism of action of many different drugs or potentially different combinations of medications. Um, so, so while we don't know that every single chemotherapy agent would have such an effect, it also doesn't seem to be one medication in particular. And surely over the last 30 years or so since you've known about this, those drugs have changed a lot. But have we seen the rate increase or have we noticed any change? This is one of those things where, well, it's it's one of those things where um, the fact that we're more aware, as with many issues in in medicine, the fact that we're more aware of this or that that patients are becoming more familiar with this concept and talking to each other about, yes, I've had this symptom as well. It's, It's impossible to know if this is a problem that's increasing or decreasing in its its actual incidence or if it's something that we're more aware of and so we're recognizing more appropriately. Um, we also, as, as we know, have more survivors because our treatment has gotten so much better. So it may be a more common problem because we're fortunate enough to be able to cure people of cancer. So all of those factors going together, it's really hard to know if this is a problem that is, is increasing or decreasing or staying about the same, but it's enough that we're at least aware that we have something that we need to address and, and look into further at this stage. Yeah. One of the issues that we've always been concerned with is, are people comfortable with coming forward and saying, I'm experiencing this? So by raising awareness and knowing that there is more research out there, more people are comfortable of saying, I'm experiencing that too. So the more people that we have around the table sharing what helps them, the the better people are going to be able to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a couple of sort of basic questions. My, my first is... Um, for those who have not undergone chemotherapy, I mean, chemotherapy is this big word that, you know, people, I think, well, I'll just take me as an example. I mean, I, I don't know how many different kinds of drugs might be used in a chemotherapy treatment. I mean, how does a, like a, I guess, cocktail might be the word of drugs get put together? And how many different kinds of chemotherapy are there? There are actually hundreds of different chemotherapy drugs, and they often are used in combination because the different drugs kill cancer in a different way. So sometimes a cocktail of two or three, even up to five drugs may be given, but it's all done very specific to that patient and to that type of cancer that they have. There is no cookie cutter chemotherapy. We like to tell people you really get designer treatment when it comes to chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And that that sort of was sparked by Sarah's question because it would think if there are hundreds of different drugs that are used that you might be able to isolate, you know, half dozen that lead to this particular side effect, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Not necessarily partly because drugs are used in combination so often that that one patient's regimen may be just slightly different from someone else's. Even when you're following, for example, a research protocol, modifications need to be made depending on an addition. particular patient's side effect or their response to treatment and those kinds of things. Um, We do know that there are some medications that are are more commonly linked to problems. And there are also some roots of medication administration that are more commonly linked to problems. So for example, um, children who undergo chemotherapy treatment for leukemia will often get what's called intrathecal treatment, meaning treatment that's um, injected directly into the central nervous system. And we know that that mode of administration and those drugs, for example, high-dose methotrexate, those are children who are more likely to have difficulty um, than children, for example, who don't need intrathecal treatment, who just get IV treatment, or than individuals who could just get oral treatment. So we know some things about relatively higher risk, but again, we can't divide medications into this one is is an an agent that we know will have cognitive effects and this one won't because we just don't have that level of specificity at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, and then my my follow-up question to that is, so I would think that if if you now know, I mean, if there's a lot more certainty that this is a physical kind of reaction in the brain, that there must be research being done on a drug, another chemical, that could offset that particular symptom, correct? Yes and no. Okay. Um, so, so one really good question that we have um, 
for cognitive symptoms is is how to best treat them. Um, so you could have cognitive effects of any of a number of medical problems, and they're very commonly these kinds of things that we've been talking about in terms of um, short-term memory or attentional focus or uh, not being able to keep track of multiple things at once. And how to treat those kinds of problems regardless of those their cause has been an ongoing area of research in neuropsychology. And, and actually, the one of the most common approaches has been behavioral treatments, has been rehabilitation or therapy treatments. And so there certainly has been work looking at what treatments might be effective for folks who are having these symptoms as a result of cancer or, or cancer treatment. There's also been some research into medications that are already out there. So, um, for example, the medications that are used most commonly to treat attention deficit disorder, and a number of those medications have been looked at at this point. That, that class of medications, stimulant medications and some other um, non-stimulant medications that are also used for attention problems, those have been tried. None of those trials have been huge, and they've, they've had some sort of mixed results. So certainly anecdotally, I, I've, I've talked to patients who have found those kinds of medications helpful, but there hasn't been um, a convincing slam dunk kind of a study yet saying we know for sure that these medications do or don't help. There have been suggestively positive findings, but nothing that we're sure of that works. Um, another thing that, that I've seen occasionally for patients have been some of the medication classes that are used for uh, more severe cognitive impairments, dementia, for example. Some of those medications get used, but that's much less common, and, and there's not good data necessarily to support it. But those kinds of things, so I think medicine is more at the um, trial and error stage of things that might reasonably work because they work for other similar cognitive problems, but we don't have a, a first, a, a clear-cut first-line treatment for this mm -hmm. quite yet. Okay. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We're talking about uh, chemo brain today, so if you're out there and you have had experienced chemotherapy and maybe uh, you know, are familiar with the symptoms, maybe you didn't know what exactly it was, we'd like to, to hear from you. And Brenda, you were talking, I'm sorry, not Brenda, Julia, you were talking about your symptoms improving now mm -hmm, and it's getting mm -hmm. better. But I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's common in most cases. I mean, does it get better or how long do you continue to suffer from this? That, that is absolutely what the research suggests so far. What we've found, and there have been a number of quite large cognitive studies at this point, uh, showing that, just as you described, actually exactly as you described, problems are most noticed by patients during treatment and in the period shortly after treatment, those weeks to months, and that most patients who experience these symptoms notice them improve, just as you were describing yes, over yes. time. Mm -hmm. um, so that 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 can range from anywhere from folks feeling like, yep, I'm really back to myself at some point post-treatment. There are certainly some folks who experience persistent difficulties. Um, and we don't yet have a good way of being able to predict who is, who is likely to find that everything's back to normal and who is, is likely to still struggle with some of those symptoms. Um, but it, it certainly is the case. Um, the vast majority of research suggests that those initial weeks to months tend to be the most challenging with significant improvement noticed over time, just as you were describing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a, a source quoted in an NPR story that I looked at today that said that, that patients usually regain their full cognitive abilities within a, a year or so after the, after the treatment. So you're four and a half months out. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> right. So much you're, you're, you're on your way. Do, right. we, do we know much about other types of cancer, though? Because you said you know most of the research is largely with breast cancer, and do we know if it's the same in different types of cancer? Like yours wasn't breast cancer. We don't know for certain, although um, we also don't have a reason to think there would be a necessarily different mechanism. For, for patients who have um, cancers that aren't directly of, of the brain, which are kind of a different entity in terms of there you have all sorts of other reasons to believe there will be cognitive symptoms and problems that persist. But for cancers like breast cancer, endometrial cancer, or prostate cancer, or cancers that are lung cancer that are not primarily central nervous system cancers, um, while certainly there could be other physiological responses in the body that, that might be related to whatever the underlying mechanism is to these changes, which we're still working on understanding, we don't have a reason necessarily to think there would be huge differences between different types of cancer. But we don't have 
large bodies of research in numbers of different cancers to be able to say that for sure, partly because it's very difficult to design trials that address this question in exactly the same way in different cancers because the the treatment approach is different. And so you can't always catch patients at the same point in treatment to be able to make direct comparisons between different kinds of cancers. And some cancers are also obviously much less common, which again affects your ability to get big enough groups to be able to say something meaningful from a research perspective. Mm-hmm. One, one of the uh, stories I looked at uh, before the program today um, also talked about the, the day after the study was, the latest study was reported that the, the researchers, one of the researchers got like 800 emails from from different patients who said, wow, I'm glad that there's finally some more evidence of what I've had. And I want to ask Janice about you know, that kind of the importance for cancer patients of being able to sort of know what's going on with themselves. How, how important is that? Just hearing the words, you have cancer, can be so overwhelming for people. It starts a process that's like a whirlwind of doctor's appointments, of going and getting blood work, having surgery your calendar suddenly becomes very full. Your attention is focused in a different manner. So it's normal for patients to often feel so overwhelmed as if they're going crazy. So we often remind them you're not stupid and you're not crazy. You're experiencing something that can be managed. So we try to sit down with them and talk with some of the things that they can do at home to help manage having chemo brain. But also we talk with families and loved ones of different ways that they can also help this person out, keeping their dignity, because it can be so frustrating to be in a conversation and not being able to identify that specific word that you want to say, helping them out. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a short break. We're talking about uh, chemo brain on Noon Edition today. We have uh, three guests in the studio, Janice Ross, a nurse navigator with the Alcott Center for Cancer Education, Brenna McDonald, an IU School of Medicine professor, and Julia Livingston, a Bloomington artist who experienced chemo brain while she was undergoing chemotherapy. You can uh, join us at 855-0811 or at 1-877-285-9348 uh, after we get back from this break. You're listening to Noon in addition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, and we're talking about chemo brain today with uh, three very knowledgeable and very good guests. If you want to join us on the program, please phone 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Before we uh, went to, to break, um, Janice was talking about the you know, the impact of hearing that you have cancer. And Julia, you experienced that just in March. Yes. And then you went through, you know, chemotherapy. And, and fortunately for a lot of us, we've never had to undergo chemotherapy. What's it like? Well, um, I thought it might be interesting to read something from my journal from that time, uh-huh. if you'll indulge me <laughs> a little, that might say a little bit about it. I realize today that I have turned my body over to treatment, to doctors, nurses, technicians, chemo drugs, linear accelerators, and I show up when and where I'm told. I have lost my sense of dignity and strength. I hardly make anything new happen. I have lost my sense of self-possession. I am weary and a nap will not make it better. 
I awake each day to loss and more loss. I am in a despair that is beyond consolation. I am just hanging on. Mm-hmm. And what at what stage of the chemotherapy was that? Was that right after you that started? Was tw- that was getting close to the end. Close to the end? Yeah. And I was also in radiation every day at that time, too. Wow. that's So it was pretty powerful. And yet at the same time, I had so much um, love and support from family and friends. And we would go into infusion sessions, and I, the first one I dreaded so much, and the steroids made me high, and it was like, gee, my mood's better than it's been. <laughs> so it's like, but then I think the difficulty is that after that, the steroids make one's body so hyper, at least it did me, that I was like I wasn't in my own skin. If I was talking on the phone, I would circle the table 40 times, even though I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like myself. And that was a big loss. And and I noticed in my journal each week afterwards, I'd write, well, I feel a little more like myself. And uh-huh. then I'd have to have another treatment. And there's bone pain. There's difficulty sleeping. Um, there's the medications you take all, for all of that um, that really change how you experience yourself as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... Um, being connected to others and um, I would exercise. I would come back after chemo and use that energy to go for a big walk in the woods and I'd walk really fast. And I tried to stay connected to nature and that helped me a lot mm-hmm. through that whole process. And this, the, the um, side effect we're talking about today, chemo brain, I mean, wh- when did you sort of figure out that maybe you weren't thinking properly? I think that happened um, maybe the last six weeks where I wasn't, um, if a friend would talk to me, I would notice, oh, um, there's something I want to say as they're talking. And if I didn't interrupt them frantically at that moment, I couldn't get, I couldn't even remember what I was going to say to them. So our conversation would kind of go, oh, you know, I don't Uh have anything to say back. So I started noticing that more toward the end. At first, I was more in emotional shock. But as the shock cleared and I thought, oh, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I can do this. I just go in. I show up. Got to know people at the places and the nurses and begin to be more comfortable with that. Yes, this actually is my life and I can do this. Mm -hmm. Then I started um, being more aware of how in ways I wasn't normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have another friend who went through chemo who talked about sort of a three-week cycle from the, from each chemo treatment. I don't know how long apart your mm-hmm. treatments My, they were. They were three weeks. Three weeks. And mm-hmm. the, the first week w- was unique in a particular way, the second yes. week, and then the third week. Yes. The first week, um, because of the steroids that were given to help deal with so that we don't have nausea and we get through it better, once again, there's a hyperness and a discomfort and bone pain. And especially in the night. And then each week after that, that recedes. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my experience. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, our phone numbers again. And we'd like to have, hear from other people who maybe have experienced some of this, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The uh, message or the uh, address for a live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Now, you talked about your the group that you went to. Or yes. go, do you still go, I assume? Yes, yeah. yes, we still meet, and it's been so important for all of us because I think once you get this diagnosis, like you're sitting in this room and you kind of go, I'm the only person here who has – I'm the person with cancer now. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that's not normal. I'm the one that everyone feels sorry for, doesn't know what to say, what to, you know, who's sad because they may never – you know, it's all those things. And so to be in a group where it's like, this is normal. Mm-hmm. And um, we share and we, we actually laugh a lot and we cry some too. So You've always laughed a lot. Though, yes, right? I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Janice, you're nodding. I'm sure you deal. This is what you do, right, is, is counsel people like Julia, essentially? Right. We do one-on-one um, sessions with patients, but also we facilitate support groups. One meets weekly and having a sense of humor about having chemo brain can help with dealing with this. And within our support group, it's often fun to listen as they finish each other's sentences. And, you know, they enjoy each other's company and they share stories about having a foggy brain. And I think it also helps when they come to the realization that normal is now going to be different. There's a new normal. And dealing with that helps them out a lot. But the camaraderie in support group is wonderful. Support group is not for everybody. Some people like to deal with some of their issues 
all by themselves, but we have a weekly support group that's well attended. Mm-hmm. Brenda, I want to ask you a, a research question. How do you control for other factors, like things like, you know, we've we've heard things like healthy body, healthy mind. Does how does that play into this? It, it certainly, it, we certainly believe that it does. I mean, one one way that we control for some of those factors is by gathering as much information about every participant as we can. So, for example, in the studies that our group conducts, our patients who are saints in what they will will do for us will fill out these incredibly lengthy questionnaires, asking about all those kinds of things about various life variables from diet to exercise to mood to you know what they do for a living to help us get a sense of some of those other factors that might help us understand what risk factors are for people. So we we have a belief because not everybody who is diagnosed with cancer or undergoes cancer treatment has these problems. Um, so it, it would be really helpful for us to under, be able to understand some of the risk factors for people um, in terms of knowing what puts someone at increased risk for having these symptoms and what are things that might potentially be protective for individuals. So, for example, some of the... the things that we've seen in in our research, and certainly other groups have seen these things as well, is that, um, for example, individuals who um, sort of started out from a better place cognitively in terms of being relatively more intact, not already having cognitive problems to begin with, tend to be folks who who do somewhat better in treatment or maybe less likely to notice symptoms. So we call that having a higher baseline ability or higher cognitive reserve in terms of sort of having more resources to deal with this. That seems to be a factor that's somewhat more protective um, compared to somebody who is maybe starting off from a level of, of some cognitive impairment already. We've also found that that age tends to be a factor or seems to be related to some degree to the the amount of difficulty that people experience. So patients who are older at the time they undergo cancer treatments tend to have somewhat more difficulty than patients who are younger. And again, that may be somewhat of an issue of, of reserve, of sort of having somewhat more biological resources in some way. But we're sure that there are probably lots of other factors, genetic factors, potentially other lifestyle risk factors. We've been looking at things like smoking, um, trying to understand what might be other factors that play into us to help us understand why it's a subgroup of people who tend to notice these symptoms, and then a subgroup of people, yet again, who have them persist over time and not get better. And so trying to understand those risk factors, um, certainly getting what you were asking, we ask a lot of questions to try and get a sense of what might be potentially contributing aspects that will help us understand that. And I assume when you say it, maybe it's not as prevalent in younger people, I assume there's a cutoff, though, because if, if people are really small and their brains are still forming. Well, and that's a relationship. So, for example, if we're looking at a large group of patients, it tends to be that those who are older do less well. But it's not that there's an age below which you're guaranteed not to have problems. So, for example, we do a lot of one of my other areas of research is looking at children who've been treated for leukemia, which is typically diagnosed in very early childhood. These are children diagnosed at like two, three, four years of age who then go on to have cognitive problems in, that affect their functioning in school and potentially you know, in jobs later in life and things like that. So it's not to say that there's an age below which you won't have problems. Anytime we're administering any treatment that affects the brain, we have to be vigilant for these kinds of things. Um, But for example, in adult cancer patients, we've noticed this correlation with age where folks who were diagnosed and treated older tend to have more difficulty. And, And we also don't fully know how that interacts with cognitive changes of normal aging. So one of the areas of interest for folks at the older end of the lifespan is looking at how cancer and its treatment might be related to risk for dementia or Alzheimer's disease or things like that. We, and we have a belief that um, this might put folks at increased risk, but we don't have data yet to, to be sure of that. It's an area of active, ongoing research, actually. I'm curious about your research with, with kids who have leukemia. How, I mean, how, how long has that research been going on? Because it seems like uh, you know, a longitudinal study would be really important with those kids, but I don't know how long you've been doing it. Well, our, our study's relatively new. It's only been going on for the past um, about year and a half or so, but there certainly have been studies by other groups following these kids mm-hmm. over time, and, and what they've shown, which has been, um, I think, humbling and and confirmed for us this is, is a reason, to, this is an area we still need to be really investigating, is that there, there was a study that came out last year looking at young adults who were treated for childhood cancers and showing that um, in many cases, they have persistent cognitive deficits. And again, just really highlighting our need to continue looking at this area because this is something that can have very far-reaching effects. And 
we were talking a little bit earlier about different cancers obviously needing different treatments. And so to some degree, we are talking about different issues here. In childhood cancer, you're treating a developing brain, which has potentially different implications than treating an adult cancer where, while obviously the brain is continuing to, to develop in some way over time in terms of experience and things that happen to an individual changing their brain, you're dealing with a, a different organ than one that is actively developing where we're giving a treatment that might change the course of that development. And so those are very different research questions that we're trying to, to get answers to. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. The uh, website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and also you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Julia, I want to talk about your art a little bit more. The Mm -hmm. uh, 100 Cups project, you said the last five were done after your diagnosis, and that that you you used that sort of to talk about, I guess, where you were mentally at that point? Yes, the kind of process. um, Mm -hmm. I know when the first shock hit me, I I did a cup, and these are very sculptural cups, so some of the handles take six or eight hours. I'll give the website address. People should go to it. it... Um, The first one I did was departures because I was feeling a sense of that I could be leaving. So it has kind of a pulling off and a winging out away from the base of the cup. And then I did full circle fallopian farewell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have, the handle is kind of a, a fallopian tube with an ovary kind of. <laughs> and then I did one called herectomy. And um, it's, you'll just have to see. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And then, then I did one that's all confused and swirling and is called every which way because I was trying to decide whether to use um, traditional medicine or just use um, – acupuncture and holistic medicine and I ended up using both but I was I was just so confused as you Mm -hmm. were saying and then the last one which was the end of the whole series of 100 cups is called end point Mm -hmm. so it kind of points to the end of something but also the beginning of something else all right if you have a pen or a pencil out there you can go to uh, (laughs) www.100 it's it's uh, the digits 100 cups blog dot dot blogspot.com. So uh, Sarah will put that on the website, I'm sure. <laughs> These are amazing. Oh, thank These you. These are really fun. <laughs> thank you. I'm getting sidetracked here, Bob. Uh, right, right. <laughs> um, so how is it, how has, uh, you know, your your diagnosis affected your your art now? I mean, in terms of, I know you said that you, you feel like you're not creating new things and that you're archiving, but you're still doing some ceramics, aren't you? No, No, you stopped. I stopped. Do you think that's a permanent stop? No, no, no. But I'm taking care of myself, and I'm doing lots of things. Like one particularly exciting thing I did that I loved is that I went hunting for turkey tail mushrooms all fall because there's just a teeny bit of research that shows they help with with endometrial cancers. And they're in the woods all over Bloomington. They're across the street from my house in Griffey. They're out in Yellowwood. And so I would go out with a friend and collect them, hundreds of them, and dry them and make them into teas. And then I would feel not only had I spent energy looking for them and hiking up and down ravines and doing more than I thought I could, which would clear my thinking. You know, the aerobic activity would really clear my thinking and help with chemo brain. Mm -hmm. And then I felt empowered that I was doing something and learning something new and making something happen that might help me mm-hmm. all right so you were fun you found a lot of them huh <laughs> You're have, not, and you I can't tell dried, anybody where you I've, found them with found the help them. of friend, i have collected and dried two gallons of them and i make a tea i learned how to make the tea uh-huh. and so um and i think i feel more um, i notice i feel more like a a childlike stance in the world, like more open, which is a good thing, but also a sense of mortality that I didn't have before mm-hmm. that is is um, very serious at the same time. But um, I do feel open to new things again, and that's so in, in a new way and, and a treasuring and, and a preciousness of life that I didn't have before. I, I'm, I'm not as petty. In fact, I noticed as I get a little more petty, that's probably a sign I'm <laughs> You're getting better. More normal. Right. <laughs> Janice, as, as a nurse navigator, how important is it for for uh, a cancer patient to have some kind of an attitude like Julia's where she's going to direct her some of her activity towards something that she believes will help her? I think she did a, a very 
well-articulated job of telling us the experience that a cancer patient goes through of looking at life a little differently. And we know that having a positive attitude and finding new ways of looking at things definitely helps the journey mm-hmm. be better. I loved how you explained that you found energy of going out into nature. And I'm not familiar with the research not only that, but I've never even heard of a turkey tail mushroom. <laughs> I look like a turkey's tail. <laughs> I, I'm now enthused to learn about that. And one of the things that I love about people sharing their stories is sharing ways that they have learned to deal with chemo brain, how they have learned different things, not only practical things like keeping a list or putting things on your calendar with alarms, but also realizing that exercise and good nutrition and getting away from the distractions of the world help you also to deal with it. Yes, yeah. I, I notice that if I eat really well and, and make sure by taking medication that I sleep well, that that really helps a lot. And I also do um, some meditation, and that slows me down so that I don't expect myself to multitask or even want to multitask. I want to slow down and uh-huh. do one thing at a time, which I am capable of. Mm-hmm. So... Do you find any comfort in other people's art? Yes. um, Actually, um, my son is doing a solo show in Indianapolis in February on the whole issue of the loss of time during treatment that he felt um, when he was in shock and how he saw me move through treatment and wonderful images of strength and vulnerability. And that has meant a lot to me. I'm very excited um, Mm -hmm. that he um, really, in a way, showed his love for me and his connection to me. And what's his medium? He does um, charcoal, Uh um, two-dimensional charcoal pieces. Okay. Mm -hmm. We got an online question. I think this probably go for you, Brenda. This is from um, Trudy. She asks, what about people who receive successive rounds of chemo? Is there a cumulative effect on the brain? And have studies been done on that? Well, most uh, patients, I, I'm not sure if this is getting at what she's asking, or maybe she means the folks who've recurred and had to have subsequent treatment. I'm not sure. Could most folks, as, as I think you were describing, have multiple rounds of treatment. So they'll have treatment for potentially every, every some number of weeks and then go back for further treatment and have you know four to six rounds or, or potentially a different number, depending on the type of cancer and the kind of treatment. Um, so most of the research that's been done is done typically not... Uh, during that course of treatment, but after treatment's been completed. So virtually all the research that's out there is looking at patients potentially at a baseline before they've started treatment, and then after they've completed whatever number of rounds of treatment they're going to have, um, and looking at changes over that interval. And depending on the the cancer and the type of treatment, those intervals can be somewhat different for different um, patients or different patient groups. There's not... um, a body of research at all for patients who have had, if this is what the the person's asking about, for patients who have had a recurrence of treatment and then had to go back into treatment potentially. So so potentially they've already gotten to that post-treatment period and then had a cancer come back and had to have a whole second course of treatment independent from the first one. Um, Certainly there would be reason to think that they might, that patients might have additional effects from further treatment. Um, similarly, if other treatments had to be considered, there might be some effects from that in terms of, of uh, radiation or other treatments, depending on the type of cancer. Uh, but there's not good research out there, again, partly because the, that's yet again a smaller population. It's hard to get enough of those people in. Yeah. I should have told people by, uh, by this point in the show that Julia is cancer-free. Right. Yes, at this point, I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. <laughs> and I feel hopeful about that uh-huh. in the future. Wanna, we have a phone call, so let's go to Ted from Kokomo, who's on the phone. Ted? Hello. Uh, this gives me great insight into my treatment uh, five years ago. I had uh, stage three colon cancer, but the lasting thing I've come away with is peripheral neuropathy, primarily in the feet. Is this related, or is this just something I was happy to get? So, <laughs> okay, um, Jan- Janice, I don't know of any correlation between having chemo brain and peripheral neuropathies. Brenna, do you know of any studies that have been done? No, I. It certainly 
those kinds of symptoms are another thing that we often assess in our work, but, but we've never looked for a direct comparison between them, although obviously that's another known side effect of many cancer Can drugs. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, what is that? Peripheral neuropathy is often found in the fingers and in the toes of people who receive chemotherapy. It's often felt as a numbness or a tingling. It can be very mild, or sometimes it can be quite distracting where people actually have difficulty buttoning their clothes. It can last for a few weeks, or it can last up to a year. Mm -hmm. uh, mine seems to be permanent. It's five years. I was on massive amounts of Neurot, which is uh, the preferred treatment, I believe. Uh, it's primarily in the feet. I have basically no feeling from the ankles down, uh, heavier in the right hand and right side than in the left but uh, it does appear to be permanent. Mm -hmm. um, I, go ahead, I'd like Julia. to um, say just anecdotally that um, I was very concerned about this um, because of doing artwork. And one thing that I have used that I don't, I believe is helpful, and I think there's some research to show this, was acupuncture mm -hmm. to relieve the symptoms. And I also used healing touch therapy to help clear, kind of clear my body out. And um, I feel that both of those things were helpful and for me with neuropathy. So I just put that out there. Right. Okay. okay. Ted, Ted, have you talked right. to your, uh, your yes. physicians, your oncologist about this? Uh, yes. Uh, I was told it was a, a possibility at the time. Uh, my original oncologist uh, burned out uh, and has left. To go back to school to study something else. Uh, the oncologist I have now is is very good, but we haven't discussed this yet. So, all right. Well, good luck. It, it has been five years, so they're only seeing me, you know, on a limited basis now. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the effects can be uh, uh, very interesting, to say the least. So, uh -huh. did you uh, did you have did uh, chemo brain? Was that part of your uh Part of your experience? I, uh, at this point, I don't. I cannot say how much it was. Mm -hmm. uh, it may have just accentuated all the other little quirks I have. So, <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, thank you so much. I'll look into that uh, to those two possibilities. Thank uh, you. All right, Ted. Thanks a lot. We still have a few minutes. If you want to. Give us a call, 855-0811-877-285-9348, or you can join uh, the chat or send us a question, wfiu.org slash noon edition. This might be a bit of a stretch, but Brenna, maybe you can answer this. I'm wondering how much the research we're doing looking into cancer and chemo brain can be applied to some of these other brains we hear. I know when I was pregnant, I heard a lot about baby brain. and. Um, is there any connection? I mean, I'm wondering, is this really something internal in our, in our, in well, our brain? I was thinking about something I think that's related to what you're asking just now when the, the caller was speaking, which is that some of these things, um, it's important for us to take a step back and recognize that some of these things are just, just part of life. So, for example, you were mentioning earlier the going into the room and forgetting what you came in for. And, and for all of us, that happens sometimes. And it happens increasingly to us as we get older. You know, there are, there are cognitive changes that are part of normal life. Um, and one of the things that I think is appropriate for all of these uh, cognitive um, disorders, you know, baby brain or chemo brain or what have you, is... Um, taking a step back and recognizing for ourselves how are we what are we attributing that change to are we saying oh my gosh this has happened it must be due to my treatment or are we saying wait a minute this happened to me before sometimes too maybe it's a little worse now but it's it's not that this is has never happened before and now it's a new problem and one of the things that is done in in some of the therapeutic treatments designed to target these kinds of problems is um Coming up with realistic attributions. What's normal in life? You know, looking at surveys of healthy people who have no medical problems who say, yeah, sometimes I walk into a room and forget what I was going to do, or sometimes I lose my stream of thought um, mid-conversation. That's not to say that these problems aren't accentuated, as the caller was just saying, by treatment, that, that some things that may, not ha may have already been there might get worse. But it's also 
giving yourself a break sometimes and saying, you know what, this happens to everybody sometimes. And it, just as you were saying earlier, using humor sometimes to, to diffuse that kind of thing and say, oh, this is a treatment-related thing. At least there's other people here who can share that with me. But also saying, you know what, this happens to everybody sometimes too, and it's okay. Um, it, it may be extremely frustrating in the moment, but knowing that some of those things are just things that happen to everybody and not to, to give yourself an even harder time about it. So I think the same kind of phenomenon that, that can happen to, to pregnant women and new mothers because they're overtired, because they're stressed, because there are hormonal changes, what have you, it's also good to take a step back and go, well, wait a minute. Is this something I can work with or, or work around by making lists, by doing some of those common sense things that just help you function day to day when you're busy or overwhelmed, regardless of the reason for that, if it's medical or just life circumstances or what have you. We only have about 90 seconds to go, and I want to ask uh, Janice to, to talk a little bit about, um, you know, there must be some, some things that you see from, they're sort of typical of patients that you see for the first time, things that you, you know that somebody who's gotten a new diagnosis of cancer is going to be struggling with. Are there a few of those things you can tell us about and what you would uh, suggest to those people if, if we have some folks out there listening who... Sure. One of the things that we like to make sure and do is also talk with a loved one in the room at the same time so that they're hearing the same message and understanding just the overwhelming aspect of hearing this news mm -hmm. and how they can help out. One of those things is, first of all, just acknowledging that this is a possibility and that it's okay. Mm -hmm. That um, it, it's it's going they're going to be all right by experiencing this this foggy brain, and giving them some time. And when important decisions need to be made, or when important things need to be discussed, make sure you're doing that in a quiet environment, where there are no distractions. Mm -hmm. uh, helping that person with a calendar, or making post-it notes, giving them some little reminders of things that are important and helping them out. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank all three of our guests, Janice Ross, Brenda McDonald, and Julia Livingston. Uh, please uh, go to Julia's website, which, uh, well, I'm, I'm, it's www.100cupsblog.blogspot.com. For um, Sarah Whitmire and Gretchen Frazee and Julia, Julie Raw, as well as engineer Stuart Norton, thanks for sitting in, Stuart. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.